You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. So we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise in the news cycle, get to the things that matter, don't waste time on things that don't, and do our best to discern the times we live in by talking to people that know what they're talking about for the most part and paying attention and turning down the noise of what's going on, especially because it's very noisy this time of the year, this special season of the year that comes around all the time, this special season of the year that comes around and we all come together and we all feel like one. Yes, of course, I'm talking about omnibus season. Happy omnibus season, everyone. Yeah, I know. We're doing an omnibus again because we don't know how to legislate and we don't know how to pass budgets and we don't know how to do basic things. It's absolutely ridiculous, these omnibus bills. And I know, I know it's, oh, we have to do this to keep the government functioning. Yes, but that's a self-made problem. Our Congress, and because our Congress is reflective of us, that means us have allowed this nonsense to go on for years and years and years. Congress these days only seems to be able to legislate by emergency, either by an actual emergency or by a self-created one, like a deadline, the budgeting deadlines like this is. We're doing this over and over and over again. We're spending trillions of dollars and we're doing these massive bills without knowing what's really in them. Although the people that wrote them knows what's in them because they pull off all the things they want off the shelf that they couldn't pass. Otherwise, shove them in these things and off we go happily into tomorrow land. This thing in particular is a monster omnibus, you know, from the Latin means to, for, by, with, or from everything. These things are supposed to be everything for everybody. Actually, let me rephrase that. They're not everything for everybody. They're everything for the politicians and the people that are tangled into them to keep them all happy because it's sure not good for the country. This particular one is really a monster. 1.66, almost $1.7 trillion 
in spending. It is 4,100 pages long. That would be three and a half of the Christian Bibles for those of you playing along in Logan and want something to compare it to. This thing is a monster. They're still working through it. The people that are actually reading this whole thing started yesterday and still ain't done yet trying to get through all the things in it. Yes, there's good things in here. There's things that have to be done. There's things that must be done. There's very important things in here. There's both parties coming out, their leadership, and proclaiming that this is a win for everybody. By the way, anytime Congress, both sides are happy and proclaiming it's a win, that's the time to start checking the fine print. So, of course, there's a lot of stuff buried in here. We won't go through the whole thing. We will post you a link. Please read it yourself. The PDFs of this thing are searchable, so you can look for certain things if you want to. And there's plenty of folks out there that are going to have their list, good, bad, or indifferent, or what's in this bill. But the important thing for us to understand is we shouldn't be doing things this way. Our Congress should be able to pass a budget every year. They should be able to do appropriations normally. They should be able to do the bare minimum of their legislative duty, which is handle the purse. The power of the purse is their delineated power, and they can't even seem to pass a budget without screwing it up or turning it into a drama. So we wind up with these continuing resolutions, and we wind up with things like the debt ceiling trash, and we wind up with omnibus bills over and over and over again. I was trying to think of a way to explain omnibus and how ingrained it's become into the culture. Now, a lot of this is just because Congress, like flowing water, takes the path of least resistance. This is the easiest way to get stuff passed is you do failure theater all year of, oh, gosh, we sure did try hard to do this, that or the other, knowing that at some point at the end of the year, the end of the fiscal year, or when something goes wrong or the defense bill comes up or something like that, they'll just take all the stuff they couldn't get past normally, shove it in this thing and hope they get it through that way. And then they can go home and say, look at what I did for you, the folks, the people. It's the easier way of doing this. So thus they do it and they're going to keep doing it until we get them to stop doing it. So that's part of it. But really, I think we should just start calling this what it is. I think Omnibus is the official religion of Congress now. You think that's too harsh? Well, why are we sacrificing good governance? Why are we sacrificing good legislation? Why are they sacrificing their responsibility as lawmakers? Why are they sacrificing the fiscal future of our country by not properly going through what we are and are not spending our money on? They quit sacrificing things to the God of Omnibus every year because it's easier to do it that way, because it's easier to blame something like Omnibus or the situation that they themselves created than to just take accountability and do their job day in and day out the other 364 days out of the year, or really the other 90 or 90 or 100 odd days that they actually work during the year to be more specific. Omnibus has become kind of a religion. You just go through the ritual of it to appease the gods, or in this case, not the gods, but the electoral public, that you're doing something and you're not keeping the government shut down and you're just kind of kicking the can down the road. Problem with that is that's a bad religion and a God that's going to fail you every time. There's going to come a day where you're not going to be able to omnibus your way out of some of the mess that they are making long term. Oh, I know that may be a ways off, but I guarantee you when we get there, it's going to be one of them gradually then suddenly things. And you're going to wonder how we got there as quick as we did. Just remember, omnibus is supposed to be everything for everybody. But it's really just everything for the select few in power to make their lives easier. We should demand better of our lawmakers. But until we do, there's no point fussing about omnibus. It's basically our fault. More Hertel right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's talk about former President Trump real quick. He's all over the news for a lot of reasons. Of course, the January 6th committee just released their recommendations, including criminal referrals that really don't matter a bit because DOJ is doing their own thing anyway. Uh, he's, of course, got the special prosecutor looking into the Mar-a-Lago document scandal, and he's announced to run for president and has proceeded to do very little to actually run for president other than get mocked for his trading cards that look like Trump the Gathering. There's something else I want you to pay attention to. We talk about turning down the noise. Look, we got a lot of book on Donald Trump. If you haven't made up your informed opinion about the man by now, I don't know where you've been. You have enough evidence to make a judgment call by this point. But there's this continued discussion going into the 2024 campaign of who's the head of the Republican Party. And since he was the last Republican president and now a candidate again, he would be the natural choice for a lot of people, not just because of his status prior, but because of what he should be doing. I want to give you two data points to pay attention to, to how much control Donald Trump, the actual person, exerts authority over, not just Donald Trump, the political brand and movement of folks who use that to get their political ends and means done. If somebody's actually welding power in a political party, they're able to influence, they're be able to do things. There's two things going on right now that you need to pay very close attention to that prove that because, frankly, we've already got the data. He's just not interested in such things. But more than anything else shows that he does not have the influence some people think he does. Right now, the Republicans are trying to select the next speaker of the House for their incoming majority. Kevin McCarthy is Donald Trump exerting influence and in getting who he wants in that race. The other one is chairmanship of the RNC. Rona McDaniels, who's been in charge of that for a while. Remember, uh, it was Rona Romney McDaniels, but Trump didn't like that, so she dropped it. She's trying to hang on to power with another challenge. See if he gets the people he really wants. See if he can exert influence on those races, because somebody that really has control over power over their party would have their people that they want in those very important positions, especially if they're planning on being president again, because you would obviously need to fundraise a lot. You would need the apparatus of the party and you would need the Speaker of the House to pass legislation. But that's not how Trump thinks. He thinks the whole party should be a tool for him personally. It's a standard that we have a lot of book on. It's how he operates, good, bad or indifferent. Now, he did become president the first time that way, but he also limited himself a lot because he didn't use the party for other matters. He just saw the party as something for him to use. Now, that's the Republicans' own fault. But just two data points to turn down the noise on some of the goings-on over in the GOP for the next couple of weeks. Is he going to get somebody he wants with the Kevin McCarty mess? Is he going to get the person he wants in the RNC chairmanship? Now, whoever's in both those positions is, of course, going to praise him and work with him and at least nominally try to pretend to get along with him so that they can get the support of his followers. It's something to pay attention to, especially if the 2024 campaign does not go well for Mr. Trump. More her tell right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we haven't seen him in a while, but we love having him on. Alexander Salter's back with us. He's an economist down there at Texas Tech. Uh, my friend, you have been all over the place. I, it's so good to talk to you again. Let me start right there, though. When you're doing all these media hits and you're doing all this writing you do, and you've been all over the place, what's the feel you're getting about economics right now? Not just you know what you see as the expert, but the questions you're getting asked, the things people maybe pose to you on social media, things like that. What's, what are you seeing from your end of it? We're always asking from our end as you, the expert. Give us the reverse opinion here for a second. I'm happy to do that. Everybody seems to talk like the post-COVID economy. We've arrived at this brave new world where all of the old economic relationships don't hold. Things are weird. The economy is not, quote unquote, behaving as it should. And then you actually go and look at the data and you see this actually looks very, very familiar. For example, I just finished a piece right now that I hope will be forthcoming in National Review, uh, arguing about the non-existence of the trade-off between inflation and unemployment. Sometimes you hear economic journalists and especially economic policymakers write about this supposed trade-off between inflation on the one hand, how fast the dollar is depreciating, and the unemployment rate. And the idea is you can run the economy quote-unquote hot, in which case inflation will be high, but unemployment will be low, or you can cool things off a bit, in which case inflation will come down, but you've got to accept weaker labor markets. But we've known for 40 years in economics that that's just not true. You can have full employment the maximal productive amount of employment in an economy possible with virtually any inflation rate, right? Go and look at what happened to the U.S. economy before COVID. The economy was growing strong. Inflation was low, 2%, below 2%. What was the unemployment rate? 3.5%. Then the COVID shock happened. Now things are finally settling down. People are worrying about a recession, but we're not there yet. Nonetheless, we have 3.7% unemployment. That's virtually full employment. What's inflation though? Inflation is through the roof, right? Everybody's so excited because it's slowed down to a 7.1% annual rate as if that's something good or something to be proud of. But what it does show off, show us is this simplistic idea that there's a menu of trade-offs that policymakers can pick between, oh, how fast do we want the dollar to depreciate and how many people do we want out of work? It doesn't work that way. We need to get this idea out of our heads or else central bankers are going to keep on messing up the economy. 
Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. Is it a nomenclature thing? For example, you just touched on it. Let's take one that's been a real hot topic. I've been writing about it and covering it, too. We keep talking about this weird labor market where we have, you know, low unemployment, but we also have a labor shortage in certain sectors. Well, it's been that way for about 18 months. At some point, do we stop saying this is weird and start saying, well, maybe this is a new thing. We need to change our terminology. You're an economist. What's the difference between an aberration and a trend? And we need to adjust how we're talking about something because that's like recession. You just said it. We have a standard for recession that's, you know, 60, 70 years old. Do we need to look at that definition again? When do we change how we talk about these things to affect how they are right now today in the year of our Lord 2022 for the next two weeks? It's a great question. When I see an economic pattern that's persisted for something like a year, a year and a half, 18 months, like you just said, I'm very skeptical that there can be shortages or surpluses of pretty much anything on the market over that long of a time horizon in the sense that at the current price of the good or service, whatever it is, there's either an excess supply of it or an excess demand of it. If you look at labor markets, what's going on? I'm sure it's the case that people who own businesses would like more people to work at the prevailing wage rate. That's not the same thing as a labor shortage. That just basically means that given the wages that firms are now offering, not as many workers want to work as employers would hypothetically want to work. Well, we always want more good things, right? We always want more workers. We always want more goods and services. The question is, are we willing to pay for it? In other words, if you look at the labor market, what I'm inclined to see in economics jargon is a constrained optimum, which in normal person terms basically means the best that we can do given the constraints that we have. So I don't think that there's anything particularly bizarre or dysfunctional about our labor markets. The only thing that's somewhat unusual was the about one and one and a half percent permanent decline, at least it appears permanent, in labor force participation rates, right? After COVID, the fraction of able-bodied adults that were even looking for work, uh, either had work or looking for work, fell by about a percent, one and a half percent. That's something that in the long term doesn't portend great things. You know, it's, it's easy to say, well, it's only at one percent, it's only one and a half percent. That still translates into millions of workers, right? So it's no longer correct to call them unemployed because they are, for all meaningful purposes, out of the labor market. My guess is the leading cause of that was overly generous transfer payments by the federal government leading up to during and even in some instances after the pandemic. And hopefully after those wind down, we might get some of those people out of the labor force back in the labor force. Yeah, Alexander Salter, economist down at Texas Tech. He's all over the place with writing. We're going to link to a few of them. The old joke in media when I first started doing media and radio and things was you can only talk about the economy when something bad happens or at Christmas. Well, we're at Christmas right now. Just give me kind of a big picture. Where's the economy actually at? We, we can see what consumer spending is. Somewhere here right after the first year, people will write all these think pieces on what the spending at Christmas means or doesn't mean. I know I heard a thing yesterday about, well, the millionaires are doing this, that, and the other. Like, that matters a hill of beans. Give me something that people talk about the economy at Christmas. Is it the consumer spending? Is it the lack of consumer spending? What should they be watching for when all those think pieces come out first of the year? Insofar as we're able to observe what's happening, I think that people are starting to notice that, as expected, there is a big uptick in consumer spending going into the holidays, although it's not as big as some people were anticipating. I don't necessarily think that that's a problem. I think that focusing on consumption patterns gives you a distorted and not very helpful picture about what the economy is doing. Especially in economics, you want to avoid the temptation to focus over much on the short run and focus more on the medium to long run. And so what I'm more worried about is 
are we actually going to continue to see positive economic expansion? Are we going to continue to see positive economic growth? Are labor markets going to continue to stay healthy? Is the central bank going to succeed in continuing to bring down the inflation rate? Those are the big picture demand side and supply side questions that are ultimately going to determine our economy's fundamental viability. And of course, they have political ramifications as well going into the next election cycle. Alexander Salter joining us. Let, let me just harp on this for a second, though. Like just the way I asked that question to you, because you do a lot of media hits. Is that warping our sense of how we cover economics? Because it's like a lot of other things, it's like politics or anything else. We only pay attention to it when it hurts, right? Is that warping our view of economics, only paying attention to it when something bad happens and only paying attention to it at Christmas? Is that part of the problem here, how we cover it, how we talk about it? It does give you a biased picture of what's going on. Again, if you only care about things when it looks like the sky is falling, you're going to think the sky is always falling because the only times we talk about it, the sky happens to be falling. And then when things are going normally as they should, there's not much chatter about it. But every year, pundits and economic forecasters start talking about what's going to happen at Christmas. We know that there's going to be an uptick in consumer spending, largely because that's anticipated, though it doesn't portend any serious change in economic trends. It's a seasonal blip, right? We'll have it in the raw data. The statisticians will filter it out so we can get a quote unquote seasonally adjusted picture so we don't let Christmas artificially uh, skew the economic performance of, in terms of long-term trends. I really don't think the holiday spending is that big of a deal. It might be somewhat interesting that it's lower than many people were anticipating, but there are a lot of sectors that are actually performing well, right? Air travel, one sector of the economy that's very, very strong right now in terms of a lot of people wanting to buy tickets. Ticket prices are high, flights are booked. Right, You sometimes hear complaints about not enough pilots, not enough staff. I'm sure that adjustments will come about to fix that particular problem. But I think that we need to focus on more long-term economic trends that get at fundamental economic viability. I'm personally very worried about regulations continuing to make energy needlessly expensive. I'm very worried about possible dissensions on the Fed Board of Governors that might slow their monetary tightening strategy. There's a lot of stuff going on that gets away from the nuts and bolts of day to day, what's going on with consumption, what's going on with investment, that gets at the basic patterns that we need to get right if we're going to have continued economic performance to the degree to which Americans are accustomed. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. You just you mentioned it earlier, and since we're talking about getting into kind of a pigeonhole of the now and getting trapped in that a little bit. Let's look ahead a little bit. You just mentioned the Fed. We know interest rates are probably going to raise them a little bit more is what they've kind of been indicating still. How much should we be paying attention, not just that they're raising it, but at some point they're going to have to stop raising it. And then at some point down in the line, they're going to start bringing it back down. Nobody's talking about that right now. I know economists are looking at things like that, but let's do a little projection. So we're not trapped in the moment. When do they start looking at that? How hot to run it? How hot not to run it is the terminology they use. When do they bring it down? It's that old we've talked about that illustration before if you know you're on the highway you're trying not to rear end the guy in front of you but you don't want to slam on your brakes so you don't get rear-ended that kind of a thing what's that time frame looking at the next year two years three years we should be paying attention to that right now so we don't cause the next problem right i think that that's important the place to start is with the fed's own forecast the smart money says that we're going to stick with half point rate increases for the foreseeable future so instead of 75 basis points it's going to be 50 basis points I don't have a particularly strong opinion on exactly how fast it should be between those two figures. I think that there are reasonable arguments for both sides. The one thing I do feel strongly about, though, is this view that's emerging among some policy watchers and even some policy makers 
that it's getting close to time to stop tightening entirely. I don't think that's the case. Given the inflation rates we're still seeing, the neutral policy interest rate should be somewhere between six and 9%, right? And we're just over 4% now. So we still have some room to go. I think that we need to continue staying the course. When the Fed's own projections don't have inflation returning to normal, meaning 2% per year until 2025, we're not going excessively fast. In a better world, the Fed would target its own forecast. If they actually interpret price stability as part of their mandate as 2% inflation, why are we still waiting a year and a half before inflation gets back down to 2%? There doesn't seem to be any good reason to do that. Now, I understand that they have political constraints, that they have things that other than the narrow economics they have to pay attention to. They have interest groups that they need to cater to, consensus that they need to build among themselves. But that being said, I don't think that you can look at the data and say we're doing things too much too fast. If anything, we're erring on the side of too slow. Alexander Salter joining us. You know, here we go again with the terminology thing. But look, economics is about terminology because if you don't have a specific terminology to get into it, inflation scares people. Just using the word, it kind of freaks people out, you know, inflation. But there's this whole narrative of pre-COVID this and pre-COVID that and the pre-COVID inflation level and the pre-COVID. Do we need to be using that as the measure or should we let go of pre-COVID and go, no, COVID changed a few things and here's where we need to be going now? Because I keep hearing that over and over and over in an economic reporting of, well, the pre-COVID level and we have to get back to our mean inflation rate of whatever percentage. Is that a helpful terminology or is that something we should be adapting and changing a little bit here? I don't think that we need to change our fundamental concepts to the extent that COVID did change things. It's because of all the wrenches that it threw in the supply side of the economy, the supply chain problems, the productivity slowdowns. This is one thing that economists should change how they talk about it, right? This idea of supply side inflation versus demand side inflation. Look, at the end of the day, inflation comes down to too much money chasing too few goods. So that's two different problems, right? Either there's too much purchasing power, too much money circulating throughout the economy, that's the demand side, or producing goods and services has just gotten harder, that's the supply side. Based on the arithmetic that I'm seeing, we're looking at somewhere between one and one and a half percent of current inflation being explained by supply side problems. Well, inflation is 7%, right? So that still means that you have five and a half to 6% of inflation that's explained by demand side problems, which the Fed is supposed to be taking care of. So to the extent that you don't want the central bank to interfere with supply side inflation, because there's really not anything monetary policy can do about that, there's still a lot of room for monetary policy to work to bring down the dollar depreciation rate to something more manageable, to something that's not going to continue to eating into the household budgets of millions of American families. And so I wouldn't exaggerate the fundamental difference of the post-COVID economy with the pre-COVID economy. I would say that the basic tools and concepts that we have worked well then, they work well now, and we should be careful not to say, oh, we're in a brave new world and we need to completely change how we think about that. I think that that might actually be setting us up for a little bit of irresponsible policymaking. Yeah, Alexander Salters. Uh, this is a good point to bring up the fuel thing and the gas thing. You've been talking about it a lot. 
I don't know if it rises to the level of irresponsible, but the way the gas price thing has been covered for the better part of, let's just say the last two years, just to round it off to the Biden administration. I know it goes before that because it's a lagging indicator. Just the whole way this has been discussed and covered is just kind of driving me crazy because we know exactly what moves gas prices. Like it's not an unknown formula, right? But we don't cover it that way. And we just pretend like it's changed in a different way. You've been covering it a lot. Now that we got the perspective on it and it's starting to come down a little bit and kind of balance out a little bit, give us the overall viewpoint of how we should, because at some point, point gas price is going to spike again because something weird is going to happen in the world, right? Or we mismanage it and it spikes up. Give us the overview and the lesson to take from this for the next time the gas prices go through the roof, other than, God, I'm tired of paying X amount of dollars for gas that we always seem to moan about on social media, right? Well, clearly the answer is those greedy corporations were jacking up prices just because they could. And now that prices are coming back down, that means the corporations suddenly felt the Christmas spirit and they become altruistic, like Scrooge at the end of the Christmas Carol. It's a happy story all around. No, I'm just kidding. That's not how it works. It comes down to supply and demand. It's not corporate greed. Corporations are always greedy. Therefore, permanent corporate greed cannot explain temporary price increases and temporary you know, a hypothetical burst of corporate altruism cannot explain declines, decreases in gas prices. It just doesn't work that way. Everybody's making a big deal out of the fact that fuel companies, oil companies are making quote unquote record profits. Makes sense in terms of the underlying economics of the situation. How do consumers respond to changes in the price of gasoline, right? If the price of gasoline goes up 10%, are you going to like sell your car and start walking everywhere? No, you're not, right? Because it's very costly to change your daily routine. If the price of gas goes up by 10%, you might economize on fuel by buying, say, 5% less. Notice that that's proportionately fewer, right? The price hike outweighs the amount you're scaling back in terms of purchases. Well, total revenue for companies basically means the price effect multiplied by the quantity effect. And if prices are going up faster than quantities consumed are going down, guess what? Corporations are going to make more money. But that's a straightforward supply and demand thing resulting from the fact that consumers do not respond very much to changes in the price of this good, which many of them regard as something like a necessity, something that's essential to their routine. So corporations will make more money when oil prices are high. They'll make less money when oil prices go down. This is dog bites man territory. We don't need to tell a story of corporate greed or corporate altruism or whatever. This is just supply and demand, Econ 101. Yeah, the uh, greedy corporations that haven't been allowed to build an oil refinery since the 70s. But that's another conversation folks aren't ready for just yet. Uh, Alexander Salter joining us. Uh, This is a good time to bring in things like the gas prices. We talked about the supply chain. We always talk supply side, especially people our age, because we grew up in the 80s and 90s. You've just heard supply side all your life. Do we talk enough about the what feeds into the economy? Things like the supply chain. I think there's an increase in awareness on things like supply chain the last few years. At least I'm, I'm going to give uh, the American people some benefit of the doubt here. I think folks are a little more aware of how things like the supply chain, how raw goods like oil, like a lot of people would, people are trying to buy houses and things like that, woods through the roof the last few years. Do we do a good job explaining these things that feed into the economy that then turn into economic news stories? I feel like that's getting a little more attention, maybe not as much as it should. Is that something that we should be looking at and talking about a little bit better and more effectively? It usually doesn't get that much attention because the process is actually ordinarily pretty smooth. There's many a slip between the rig and the pump, right? 
But normally that process works pretty well precisely because the market economy coordinated by supply and demand does a phenomenal job at getting goods and services moved up that supply chain in various stages. Obviously COVID threw a temporary gear, uh, wrench in the gears of the economy, temporary mind you, right? Those things are, have long since started to loosen. I'm worried that if anything, we're going to become supply chain obsessors. Now that we've suddenly realized that the supply chain can become obstructed, we're going to like try and attribute every possible economic kink to the supply chain. Something went wrong. Oh, it must be the supply chain. There's not as much milk on the shelves as I thought. Well, it must be the supply chain. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and we have more benign ordinary explanations for what's going on. So I'm worried that we're, this really gets back to the theme that I think that you and I have hit on in this segment which is that I'm worried people are going to take the COVID economy, reify it and make it this whole new thing and use that as the lens through which they try and understand economic developments of all kinds for the next generation. COVID was a once in a lifetime thing. It's important that we understand it, but it's equally important that we don't try and use that as the model or the paradigm by which we try and interpret all of economic reality. Most yeah. of the time, the simple tools and the simple techniques that we have do a really good job of explaining what's going on. Yeah, and that's Ray is in the Egyptian God, not Ray Gun for those of you from Logan. Um, Alexander Salters, he's a professor at the Rawls College of Business down at Texas Tech. Got an Amazon best-selling book, Money and the Rule of Law. Go check that out. Uh, Big 12 uh, foe for my beloved Mountaineers, but what do you do? At least this week until they shake the conference up again. Alexander Salter, let folks know where they can keep up with you till we get you on Herd Tell again. Love discussing things with you. You've done a lot of media hits. Go to his Young Voices page and look at all those media hits. He's just money on these sorts of things. Let folks know how to keep up with you, my friend. That was a good pun since I do focus on monetary economics and macroeconomics. So I appreciate you. You're welcome. I'm all my help. writings, all my media appearances, scholarly articles, popular articles, those are all at my website, www.awsalter.com. You can find it there, read what I've written, listen to me talk. If that interests you, please uh, shoot me an email and I'm happy to talk with you about pretty much anything and everything. I'm occasionally on Facebook, but uh, not so much until after Christmas. And again, you can find my Young Voices page, which has a lot of my uh, media outreach, and also my page for the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER, where I write for the Sound Money Project. We do a pretty good job of covering the Fed and focusing on good sound monetary policy. Yep, we'll drop a lot of those links in there. But if you put in Alexander Salter, the first two things that are going to come up is his Young Voices page and some of his media hits. So go seek those out, my friend. We will keep you in the rotation. If I don't see you, have a good new year and a happy holidays to you and your family. Fantastic. To you and your listeners, God bless you and Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. She hasn't been here in a while, but it wasn't because we didn't want her. She's just busy. Uh, she's another one of these super sharp Young Voices contributors. Kelsey Grant, Research and Policy Coordinator for Consulting Forum and the Oil and Gas Companies on Decarbonizing. She's also done some policy and climate work. And we have missed you, Kelsey. Welcome back. Great. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back, finally. Yeah. Good to have you. Um, let's start here. You, you work in and around the D.C. area. You hear stuff. 
it seems to me that when the Inflation Reduction Act went through, the narrative kind of changed. We know it got held up because of the climate stuff for a long time. We know what happened with Joe Manchin, and we'll get to that in a minute. Climate and environmental policy, and it kind of went from the biggest deal to an afterthought to trying to slide some of it back in to now we're talking about it again. Can you center that needle back up for us? Because it seems like this thing and the policy on it has been kind of all over the place. Uh, that's a, a fair characterization. The Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, has been across across the board. Well, the, the entire reconciliation bill, it's been a, a long, grueling process to really get for the Democrats to get something across the line. But to take take a step back, just so our viewers know exactly what the IRA is and what is contained within it in terms of climate-related provisions, you know, this was the budget reconciliation bill. It contains provisions that are uh, meant to address healthcare costs that are meant to re reduce the, the deficit and also to address climate change. So it's not solely a climate related bill and Republicans had reasons to not support the bill that had nothing to do with climate change. I think that's really important to say. Um, in terms of the climate related provisions, this bill contains things, you know, like low carbon energy tax credits for hydrogen, for carbon capture and sequestration, direct air capture, it includes um, a methane fee. It includes increased um, royalty rates for offshore and onshore fossil fuel leasing. It also includes a ton of environmental justice provisions. And so this bill is the result of months and months and months of negotiating between the House and the Senate, trying to, I think, to appease um, the Democrats' more moderate members like um, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, and this is what we're left with. And Republicans have been um, very critical of the bill and just narrowing into the climate related provisions. They've been particularly critical of provisions like the methane fee and increased fossil fuel leasing rates. Um, I will say that Republicans have been historically supportive of things like the 45Q carbon capture tax credit. But despite that, it's largely been seen as a policy or political defeat for the Republican party. And they continue to be very critical of the climate related provisions in the bill yeah kelsey grant joined us let's start right there though because uh the incoming of course now the republicans are going to have the majority in the house the incoming leadership and sort of the, the louder members of the republican uh caucus they've taken to using kind of the old playbook on this they're saying well this was a great this was the new green deal thing and all that it was not that it wasn't anywhere close to the new green deal, which, by the way, didn't get a single vote because they were the Democrats refused to vote on it on a on a matter of principle. That's not what this is, but that's where the rhetoric is going. So we can see where this rhetoric for the new Congress is going to be headed. Mm -hmm. How do we parse through that to what was actually going on here? Because as you mentioned in your piece, even their own party, there's some Republicans starting to kind of chip at the edges of that. It's like, well, wait a minute, we can't call everything the new green deal because next time mm -hmm. the new green deal comes up, we won't have any authority to talk about it. Parse this down for us a little bit. What is it, not under the buzzwords, but what should the Republicans be saying about this bill going forward? Yeah, I I, I, I want to reiterate your point that this bill is not the Green New Deal. In fact, I, and other Republicans and conservatives have been critical of Republican Party leadership for calling it the Green New Deal or saying it's a part of Demo the Democrats' radical climate agenda. I think they're really shooting themselves, themselves in the foot when they say that because there are a lot of climate concerned young conservatives out there who are supportive of some of these provisions. So I think that messaging is not going to land well, particularly on young people's ears. And so I'll also say, you know, while I think there are some 
members of the Republican Party who have adopted this kind of language and rhetoric saying it's a Green New Deal, not all Republicans have. And there are some leading voices within the Republican Party who have already expressed or demonstrated the need or the, the ability of Republicans to lead on this issue. So I think like a great example will be Representative John Curtis, the founder of the Conservative Climate Caucus. He's been working with Republicans to understand the climate issue and understand what kind of conservative climate solutions they can put forward. There are other Republicans in the party that are really stepping up to the plate, like Lisa Murkowski, Senator Mitt Rom Romney, um, Senator Kevin Kramer, Senator Braun. There, there are many Republicans also who are coming forth and saying, we need to have Republican leadership on this issue and conservative solutions can help us address this problem, perhaps even better than some of the solutions or policies being proposed to on the left. So I just want to give the Republican Party credit that even though some are really criticizing the IRA, some I think are really stepping up to up to the plate and saying, okay, there are alternatives out there. Yeah, Kelsey Grant joining us. You kept pointing it out, so let's just talk about it. The younger part of the Republican Party uh, seems to be a little more open to some stuff on climate and the environment beyond just the traditional conservation stuff. I, I think there's movement here. How politically do they capture that movement, though? Because we know the the energy rhetoric and the climate rhetoric gets way over the top. We know we have the wackadoos in the UK, in other words, where they're gluing themselves to you know walls and pavement and streets and stuff. That that stuff's easy to you know it it speaks for itself that it's crazy. Nobody wants to deal with that. We we're not quite to that level here for the most part, but there is a lot of this bigger, like you said, just calling this the Green New Deal again. Well, that's not actually accurate, and it's not actually helpful. What's the terminology and the policy explainer? Because policy doesn't matter at all if you can't explain it, right? What's the explainer to those younger generations that the GOP should be looking at to kind of get them in on this? Hey, we're doing a little bit of evolving here. We still don't want to wreck the economy over it, but we hear you that you want to talk about these issues. How do they address that, do you think? Yeah, in, in a second, I'll talk about some policies that they've pulled young people on just so we can, can get a taste of what policies young folks on the right might support. But what I'll first start off in saying is that I think the Republican Party would do well to really lean into a longstanding conservative principle, which is the free market. You know, I think the Republican Party can lean into free market climate solutions. I think it can be a, a, a winning approach with young people. Young people are sold, many young people are sold and bought into the idea that to address climate change, we need a heavy-handed bureaucratic regulatory approach to reduce our emissions. I think Republicans can come forward and say, hey, actually, these free market solutions are better than these big-handed Green New Deal kind of ideas. And so that begs the question, well, what are these kind of free market ideas? I think a great example would be a revenue-neutral, um, modest carbon price. And so Frank Luntz has actually polled um, Gen Z and millennial Republicans um, and conservatives on whether they would support a revenue neutral carbon price. And the majority of, of young Republicans said that they would. And another important point is that these, this uh, a carbon price actually been shown in several studies that it would actually be more effective in reducing greenhouse gas emissions than more regulatory heavy handed policies being proposed on the political left. So I think the Republican Party can kind of lean into these free market, market-based solutions that are more effective than some of the policies that Democrats have been pushing for. Yeah, Kelsey Grant. Okay, you teased it. Go ahead and deliver on it. Um, when you're talking about those policies, 
not the buzzwords of the policies. What do they actually do? Because you talk about like, well, we're going to reduce carbon. That doesn't really mean anything to most people. When you just say like, we're going to reduce carbon to most people, that doesn't mean anything, right? They don't have a and something to work off of. How do you change that and talk about, well, this policy will make the air cleaner. This policy, a lot of, a lot of issues with water out West. We're having a major crisis with water conservation. This is going to help us with the water situation. We're, we've got the cleanest air we've had in a hundred years, but we can make it even cleaner going forward. This will be a process that we can have real green energy jobs, not the proverbial unicorn ones that never seem to show up just to pass a bill. How do we get that language right to match those policies you're talking about? Yeah, I think there are certain issues. I think this gets into language. Once you care about what young conservative Republicans care about, then you can adjust your language when you talk about it. I think you hit on some of them. I think you kind of like localize the climate issue or benefit climate policies, you know, clean air, clean water. That's what um, there's bipartisan support and interest to those kinds of climate related benefits. I think, and perhaps this is, I'm just speaking for myself, but I, I think young conservatives ca would care about, you know, emphasizing the geopolitical benefits of certain climate policies. So there are climate policies that can really put the United States in the driver's seat of decarbonization policy, technology, and globally. So for example, you know, I, I spoke about a carbon price. They can actually apply that at, a board, at, at the border, which would be called a border carbon adjustment. And a border carbon adjustment is really a tariff or a tax on carbon intensive imports coming from countries like China. And so the United States has a low carbon advantage and a policy like this would really level the playing field and give us the upper hand in the global low carbon technology energy market. Uh, Kelsey Grant with us. You mentioned it here. Let's talk about it from a political side for just a second. You talk about the Republicans and the Democratic Party. I feel like, is this fair to characterize it this way? I feel like just the Republican Party and our friends on the right, just being against whatever the left does on energy and climate isn't enough anymore. Like we've seen this in other issues where like you can just say you're against it, but at some point you have to have an alternate policy to present them. It seems to me like the heart of your piece and the heart of some of the stuff you're getting at is it's not just going to be enough for the right to say, oh, we can't do this environmental stuff, we can't do this climate stuff. They actually need to provide an alternative. Is that a way, fair way to say this? I think that's a, a perfect way to say it. And like I said in my my piece, you know, if Republicans don't write the terms of climate policy, other, pe other people won't write it for them. And that's another way of saying if you don't want to lead, well, you'll be led. And real leadership, I think, in the context of climate change, because this is a really difficult, complex issue, Republicans have to be putting forth really smart, innovative, creative solutions. So I, I, I totally agree with you. And Republic, this is not a, a problem Republicans have. This is a human issue. We, it, it's much easier to criticize what somebody does wrong rather than proposing your own solutions to a really complex issue. But I, I really do think it's, a, it's not a political or policy strategy that will help the Republican Party win in the end. Yeah, Kelsey Grant, been far too long since we chat. It won't be so long until the next time, my friend. But until we get you back on, can you let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you and all the things you have going on? Yes, absolutely. So you can follow me at Twitter at Grant underscore um, Kelsey. I regularly and often um, write op-eds um, for Real Clear Energy, and I'd be happy for anybody to check them out. Yep, she does good work. We enjoyed having her. So glad we got you in. Glad you're well. Won't tell everybody all that story, but very happy to see you, my friend. We'll talk again very, very soon. Great. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you, ma'am. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. We haven't done one in a while, so let's do one. Let's end on some good news here, especially in this holiday season. Let's go to Rhode Island, Cranston, Rhode Island, Cranston Herald Online. It's on cranstononline.com. Holiday giving tree leads to thousands of gifts. Now, lots of communities do these sorts of things. I'm just picking this one uh, to highlight, but lots of folks do this. I wanted to highlight this one and something from more of a local news source. Rhode Islanders in every corner of the state embrace this year's Bank Rhode Island holiday giving tree program leading to an incredible 5,556 gifts donated to brighten the season for underprivileged children served by local nonprofits. It is the most presents ever collected by the program, which recognized its 25th year in 2022. This year's holiday giving tree began one November when all the 20 Bank Rhode Island branches statewide displayed a giving tree decorated with an ornament featuring the name, age, and wish of a child served by the branch's nonprofit. Through the six weeks effort, people take that ornament and later return to place their donated unwrapped gifts beneath the tree. Some of the most popular gifts were some real old staples, Legos, LOL surprise dolls, science and slime kits. Slime's always been popular since the 80s. You Nickelodeon kids know what I'm talking about. Board games, sports equipment, and Light Bright. Who doesn't like Light Bright? Numerous bicycles were donated also. Uh, they collected, the Lincoln branch alone collected almost 852 donated gifts for its partner, the Town of Lincoln Holiday Basket Program. As of December 20th, all gifts were given to the nonprofits for distribution. Now, they do this in a lot. There's a lot of different ways, not just giving trees. Everywhere you look, there's going to be people doing donations. I know I was out in Chicago. Uh, the place I was in had a coat drive. Coat drives are great things. If you're able to give something, uh, please do it. More importantly, after this holiday season, you get all your new stuff. Find some of that old stuff you may not need first of the year. Find those clothes you haven't worn in a while. Go get them donated to somebody. Uh, make you feel better about yourself. Make your community a little bit brighter. Make the holidays a little happier and merrier. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we sure do appreciate you subscribing, watching, listening. And we'll see you again real soon. So we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you next time for more Herd Tell. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So,